This is Guns and Butter. So how complicated is the immune system? It's so complicated that even though doctors like to make parents think they know what the immune system is all about, they still to this day know very little. The immune system tests that doctors use on patients today are pretty much the same as the tests they used 50 years ago. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Suzanne Humphreys. Today's show, vaccination, enough to make you sick. Dr. Suzanne Humphreys is a medical doctor, internist, and board-certified nephrologist currently in private practice. She is co-author of Dissolving Illusions, Disease, Vaccines, and the Forgotten History. Currently, the California legislature is fast-tracking two vaccine Senate bills. Senate Bill 277 will eliminate the personal belief and religious exemptions from vaccines required for children to attend public and private school. Senate Bill 792 will require CDC-prescribed adult immunization of child care workers, with the exception of flu vaccine. Today we review some of the elements of Dr. Suzanne Humphreys' video, Honesty versus Policy, available on her YouTube channel, with a special emphasis on vaccine efficacy. She continues to dispel the mythology surrounding vaccination. Dr. Suzanne Humphreys, welcome again. Thank you, Bonnie, and thank you for having me back on the show. Many people listening to this program may not have heard our first interview, so I'd like you to again describe your medical training and experience as a practicing physician. You are a board-certified nephrologist, a researcher and author. What is a nephrologist? Okay, a nephrologist is an internal medicine specialty. So after medical school, I went and did a three-year residency program in internal medicine. And then after that, I studied for two more years in something called a fellowship, which gives me a specialty in the field of internal medicine. So I studied kidneys, and the subspecialty of nephrology really covers uh, a bit of endocrinology, high blood pressure, um, you know, metabolic disorders, electrolyte disorders, and lots of interesting things like that. And we do a lot of kidney replacement therapies, such as dialysis and transplantation. Could you talk about the recent famous or infamous measles outbreak at Disneyland in California? That took place at the beginning of this year. What are the facts? What do we know about this measles outbreak and who was affected by it? Sure. It was really interesting, actually, because I was actually not in America when this started. I was, um, I was in New Zealand, and the reverberations were felt worldwide. And I really believe that that was um, part of the intention of the media blast that we were all hit with. But as of April 17, 2015, there were 136 confirmed cases of measles in the state of California. There were more than that um, outside of California. But what I do have, because you don't always get the breakdown of vaccinated versus unvaccinated, but in the California cases, we have that. So we have 136 confirmed cases, 57 of those were unvaccinated, 25 were vaccinated, and 54 were unknown. So what we should realize is that 18% of those cases were vaccinated 
and, and nearly half of them, we actually don't know the status. But what's most interesting is how the media spun this. And an exact quote that we heard over and over and over was, the majority of 159 cases with reported measles in the 2015 outbreaks were either unvaccinated or had unknown vaccination status. And I could have just as easily taken those statistics and said, the majority of the 159 patients with reported measles in the 2015 outbreaks were either vaccinated or had unknown vaccination status. Because the fact is that the unknowns were a very large proportion of that group. Yes, there were more unvaccinated than known vaccinated. So, you know, that is one of the risks of not taking a vaccine is that you are more likely to get the more common diseases. Now, I'm not somebody who's ever going to tell you that vaccines don't do anything. Um, they actually do do something. They can prevent transmission of a disease. And in the case of measles, how they do it is basically by giving children an injection of a modified measles virus, a live virus. So you're basically giving them a specialized case of measles in order to prevent the wild measles. And these vaccines only last for a short period of time. But the facts are that measles in Disneyland was an insignificant spark in a teacup, and it was blown up into a draconian, hysteria-packed flame. And I believe it was in order to energize what, what is an already planned nationwide wildfire-type legislation, which primarily destroys the rights of people to make personal choices for themselves and their own families. So who was affected by the California outbreak? I say potentially the whole world, because the rest of the world tends to adopt USA policy. And while I was abroad, I heard discussions taking place in Australia and New Zealand. There's talks in Northern Europe now about countries considering mandating vaccinations. Um, and so it will probably happen in many of those countries. And the weirdest thing to me is that we live in the most highly vaccinated world ever. And that includes California. And many people are surprised to learn that California has a measles, mumps, rubella vaccination rate of approximately 96.1% among pre-kindergarten children. It's the highest that it's ever been, and it actually exceeds the national arbitrary goal of 95%. And I recommend that people go online and read a blog by Dr. Edward Yazback in Vaccination News. And in there, he, he goes through a lot of the breakdown of, of what really is going on in the country. And what he says also is that it's a sad reality that no one mentioned that over 1,500 autism cases may have been diagnosed during the 24 first days of that measles outbreak. And that according to the 2014-2015 California Department of Public Health child care immunization assessment results, that 89.4% of the 434,000 children two years to four years and 11 months of age enrolled in reporting child care facilities received all required immunizations. There's a 0.56% of children with permanent medical exemptions, and there's only a 2.67% personal belief exemption rate. And that is actually down from the rate in 2013 and 2014. The MMR vaccination rate is actually up from what was last year. It's actually better than the rates for DPT, polio, hepatitis B, and varicelli. Yet, yet the news would have us believing that measles is worse than Ebola and that we have a national crisis. I mean, it's, it's, it's really mind-boggling when you look at the statistics. And the CDC actually surveyed exemptions among kindergarten students in 2012 to 2013, and anyone can go online and read about this. And the editor of this report stated, quote, an exemption does not necessarily imply a child was not vaccinated. More than nine 
99% of the 2006-2007 birth cohorts who became kindergartners in 2012-13 received at least one vaccine, unquote. Yet what we hear in California is that it's the unvaccinated, these educated hippie parents, you know, who are going on to create a, a wildfire throughout the world by not vaccinating their children. And if you actually look at the numbers that's far from the reality, but there's a big concern that people are becoming more educated and starting to reject vaccination as a result of their education. What is the difference between natural immunity and the protection that comes from vaccinations? Okay, that's a good question. Well, natural immunity is first driven by what's called cell-mediated immunity, which then brings in every facet of the body's immune system. And that what that does is it creates a properly programmed, durable, multifaceted form of protection. You know, lots of people think that immunity is a synonym for antibody, but the more we learn about the immune system, the more we know that that's simply not true. If you look at the case of measles, we wrote about this in Dissolving Illusions, but there are people who have a um, disorder, or I should say an aberration, called A-gamma-globulinemia. It's a big, long word, but it basically means that they can't make antibodies. Their body just doesn't make antibodies. And the funny thing is that they deal perfectly normal with measles. And scientists know that those people have lifelong immunity just like normal people. So it's very interesting, isn't it, that you know, what we do is we measure antibody to see that someone's immune to measles, yet people that don't make antibody at all not only deal with measles perfectly fine, but they remain immune. And this is important because every infection we can have is first tackled by what's called the cell-mediated immune system, and that's driven by good nutrition. People who have a bad response to measles or even long-term problems after the infection the reason is because their cell-mediated frontline immune system doesn't work properly and that it refuses to stomp on and throw the measles virus out of their body. So if you have someone with AIDS, for instance, they're going to have a terrible time. If you have someone with cancer, they're going to have a terrible time. Um, if you have somebody who has their cell-mediated immune system paralyzed because they're on steroid drugs or anti-cancer drugs, then they're going to basically have a really hard time with any sort of disease that requires their cell-mediated immunity, and measles is one of them. If children are actually formula-fed and not breastfed, we know that breastfed babies have a much better control of their cell-mediated immune systems, and moreover, they have better cell-mediated response even to the vaccine. There's a study by PABST PAPST that talks about this. So when we talk about vaccine immunity in terms of measles or whooping cough, we have to consider the route of infection versus the route of vaccination. And that, in my opinion, is one of the most important facets of what distinguishes natural immunity from the so-called protection that we get from vaccinations. And I'm just going to give you an example using whooping cough now because I, I think this is really fascinating. And that is, if a person is infected with whooping cough, their primary immunity begins at the lungs, at the site where the infection occurs. And they develop a very brisk response, and they will maintain their immunity for about 35 years. Now, if you compare that to somebody who's been vaccinated, their immunity is going to start at the injection site, and it's going to start far away from the lungs. And secondarily, the lungs will have uh, some form of immunity. And what happens later on is that, A, that vaccine wears off, but more importantly, if you compare a person who has recovered from the natural whooping cough infection to somebody who has been vaccinated, even freshly vaccinated with the highest level of immunity they can have from that vaccine, 
and you expose both of those groups to the whooping cough bacteria, what is going to happen is that the person with natural immunity, you will not be able to culture bacteria from their lungs and they will have no symptoms. The person who has been vaccinated, you will be able to culture bacteria from their lungs for up to six weeks. So this means that they're harboring bacteria, perhaps asymptomatically, perhaps with a mild cough. They're not isolated from society. They're going around spreading bacteria to the people that are supposedly the most vulnerable. So while the vaccine can maybe protect you for a short period of time, when you look at that fact that's been shown by a, a researcher named Warfell using baboons, which is an incredibly good model uh, for humans and pertussis, this is what those studies show. So that really, to me, highlights the difference between vaccine immunity and natural immunity. Is there proof that vaccination actually does what it claims? That is, does vaccination immunize? Well, you know, a lot of people like to say vaccination is an immunization. But if you actually talk to immunologists about what the definition of immunize is, that vaccines do immunize in the sense that they cause a response in the, um, in, in the immune system that can lead to recognition of something in the future. So technically, they immunize. But do they protect? And that's really the question. But the proof that vaccines immunize is presented to the public in two different ways. In clinical trials in a restricted group of super healthy people who make a surrogate marker to a disease through the vaccine. And that surrogate marker is antibody, which they say protects. But we just reviewed with measles that it necessarily isn't necessary. The second way is when the official statistics say that people aren't going to doctors with that disease anymore. And sometimes that's because the disease did go down in its natural form for different reasons. And sometimes it's because doctors don't consider that disease because they assume the vaccine took it away. So this so-called proof isn't foolproof. Literally, because I've lost count of the numbers of people who come to me <laughs> who have had whooping cough, for instance, but the doctor won't consider it. Or these people have been diagnosed with five other things first and mistreated with antibiotics, antivirals, you name it, inhalers, diagnosed with uh, uh, gastric reflux. I mean, I've, I've pretty much seen it all at this point. And so they're treated for diseases they don't have before the diagnosis may finally be made or they never actually do make the diagnosis. The people that come to me usually figure it out on their own and say, my doctor said this isn't, and what do you think? And often I'll say, just go get a swab and go get tested, and they will be. So also there are parents who just keep quiet, um, and they keep their kids at home when they get measles, and they never report it so as not to draw attention to themselves. So that also is going to skew your reporting of, of disease rates. But furthermore, there are many cases in the medical literature of people who have very high levels of surrogate markers for protection who go on to get that disease. And tetanus is a really good example where some of the most severe cases of tetanus have antibody levels which are sky high and according to science should have protected them. So that's one example of how, uh, how the vaccine would supposedly um, immunize a person but it didn't protect them. I'm speaking with physician, researcher, and author, Dr. Suzanne Humphreys. Today's show, Vaccination, Enough to Make You Sick. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Then we have a whole other issue called serotype replacement, where Gardasil is a really good example for that because, you know, 
these 9 to 12-year-olds were told that they needed Gardasil injections. A lot of their parents complied. And what we've now found is that while the Gardasil injection is actually very good at immunizing against those four strains of the virus, what's happened is that in the, in the children, they're now older teenagers and young adults who were vaccinated, we're finding that they have um, twice the rate of risk of infection with other serotypes that are not included in the vaccine, yet have risk to cause the kind of changes in cells that can turn cancerous. So what's happened is that you've basically put these kids at a higher risk for um, types of the virus that are not in the vaccine because you've wiped out what was normally in the population. And this is called serotype replacement. We see this with the pneumococcal vaccines. People might know that they started out with seven strains in the first vaccine and because other strains came in, because there's a total of 90 strains, then they move in and they can cause worse problems than the original strains, something called empyema, which is basically pus pocket in the lung. And so people can get very sick from other types, even though the vaccine did its job. And so now we have a 13-strain um, pneumococcal vaccine. And it won't be long before children are being given more strains in their vaccine. Adults have a 23-strain vaccine. So this is just what happens because even though a vaccine can be very successful at, at hitting its target, that doesn't necessarily mean that you've protected the person because the immune system is so complicated and because the, the biome structure of basically of the world, of what's around us, is not so simple. What are the criteria or studies to back up claims of vaccine effectiveness? Okay, well, I think I'd like to just talk about the flu vaccine for starters because there's a very well-organized um, system to evaluate what studies exist in order to support or refute the protectiveness of the influenza vaccines. And that's called the Cochrane Collaborative Database. And this is a very well-respected organization that uh, reviews all studies available to make conclusions whether or not interventions are valid or whether there's good support for the intervention. One of the leading investigators for the influenza vaccine in that organization is named Dr. Thomas Jefferson. And, you know, Dr. Thomas Jefferson is not an anti-vaccine doctor. He's, he's actually pro-vaccine. However, when he looked at the flu vaccine data and compared that to the publicity and the hype that we see in the world today, he was very upset. And when the Vancouver Sun interviewed him in 2012, he was quoted the following, which I think really tells it all. He said, following this perverted logic would have inactivated vaccines saving lives from accidents, strokes, accidental poisoning, hypothermia and falls, but not from influenza and pneumonia. Either the inactivated vaccines are miracle workers or there is something very wrong with the evidence. Cochrane reviews weigh the evidence by its quality not by their conclusions. So he's well aware that the conclusions are usually pre-made and then the uh, so-called science or studies are designed in order to prove the predetermined conclusions. So for the sake of clarity, let's discuss baby vaccines for a bit. The criteria are easily seen on a website called clinicaltrials.gov, clinicaltrials.gov for any vaccine. 
those trials mainly go like this. They'll take a base population, say 2,000 babies, and what they'll do is they'll eliminate babies that had a traumatic delivery, they'll eliminate babies from a normal delivery if they're under a certain weight, they'll eliminate babies with developing health issues, they'll eliminate babies whose mother has an autoimmune disease or disorder which is likely to affect the baby in any way, eliminate babies born to a normal mother who seems to have an immune system problem, they'll eliminate every sick baby or baby taking certain drugs, babies who in the opinion of the researcher need to be eliminated from the study. This is the waste paper basket for anything unforeseen that they didn't think of beforehand. The result is that the study population might now be around 900 babies, which now bears no resemblance to the neonatal population at ground zero who will be recommended this vaccine. Then they'll find a similar control group of babies with radiant health who will receive all standard vaccines except the target vaccine. It also bears no resemblance to the population at ground zero. Okay, once we have those two groups set, they do the study. Then they eliminate any study babies that quote, don't adhere to protocol, which covers an array of problems, which I don't have time to get into. They'll pronounce that in this unique hand-picked group of babies that the vaccine is safe and effective, and then legislate that to be given to everyone at ground zero, including the very babies that were eliminated from the trial in the first place. So that's how many vaccine effectiveness or safety trials are done. With the new pending California law, babies with birth defects that trials may never have been done on will still be mandated to have the vaccines. People with seizure disorders, family history of problems such as seizure disorders, genetic predispositions, history of vaccine reactions, and many of the groups who are prone to have a hard time after vaccines will still be told they have to have vaccinations anyway. Even the Center for Disease Control admits that vaccines are not 100% effective. Do different vaccines have different effectiveness rates? Do they wear off? Well, every person vaccinated will have a different response to that same vaccine. It all depends on the person's genetics, and it also depends on lifestyle factors. For instance, drug addicts who wreck their immune system by injecting will not have the same sort of cell-mediated and antibody response to a tetanus vaccine as someone who's eating well and living normally. We also know that diabetics tend to have less of a response. We know that people with chronic kidney disease. So there are lots of kind of knowable underlying disorders, and then there are lots of things that we really don't know about until after a vaccine has been given, which makes us not all equal. So in the 1990s, the vaccinated um, but homeless alcoholics in Russia had a vastly higher case fatality rate from diphtheria than the vaccinated normal people um, who had a home and didn't make themselves comatose with alcohol. So that's just, that's just another factor uh, that, that we know has come into play with regard to whether or not people get the disease, whether they're vaccinated or not. Uh, even within a so-called normal population, though, there's a wide range of so-called protection by any one vaccine, from barely detectable antibodies to levels much higher than the majority of the vaccinated. And that's not determined by the vaccine a lot of that time. It's determined by the health and the prior immunologic experience of the person that that vaccine was given to. And yes, different vaccines have different success rates for their intended goal, and the vaccines do wear off. All of them eventually wear off, and they wear off at different times depending on which vaccine you're talking about. I believe I read in an article about your book, Dissolving Illusions, Disease, Vaccines, and the Forgotten History, 
that the practice of vaccination was developed before the immune system was fully, or even for that matter, partially understood. Is this the case? And if so, what are the implications when analyzing both vaccine safety and vaccine effectiveness? How complicated is the immune system? Okay. Well, as you know, our book is a history book, and so we had a bit of information about that in there. And Edward Jenner is the guy, he's not a doctor by any means, he's not even a scientist, but he was the guy who invented the smallpox vaccines in the late 1700s. And back in his day, they didn't have a clue what a white blood cell was or anything else. Doctors had no formal training and they empirically made conclusions on what they thought they saw with their eyes. So Jenner's so-called experiments that were totally uncontrolled, meaning they had no control group, um, those conclusions are not worth much at all as far as what, what Jenner's experiments were. But often doctors in those days were no more knowledgeable than parents were. And often parents had more skills and sense than doctors did. In Dissolving Illusions, we wrote about the home remedies that were very helpful in the smallpox times. But today that's considered quackery. Yet arm-to-arm vaccinations and stabbing pus from infected cow udders into an infant's skin was considered state-of-the-art. Funny enough, the scientists in the 1600s and 1700s who were actually beginning to use microscopes to examine body elements and microbes were considered nut jobs at the time. So how complicated is the immune system? It's so complicated that even though doctors like to make parents think they know what the immune system is all about, they still to this day know very little. The immune system tests that doctors use on patients today are pretty much the same as the tests they used 50 years ago. And while the research world is right on to something called genomics and vaccinomics in the broad sense, which has the ability to look deeper at the issue, that has little impact at ground zero in helping parents actually deal with issues. Let me give you an example. Up until a few days ago, the average doctor will have believed that the brain didn't have lymphatic drainage system and also that the brain was privileged, which means that it was somehow magically exempt from rejecting things that the rest of the body would toss out. But a couple of weeks ago, a paper was published in the journal Nature by a scientist named Luvo, L-O-U-V-E-A-U, which showed that, guess what? The brain does have a lymphatic system. Pretty amazing. I mean, here we are in 2015 where the human body is supposedly all mapped out and they missed the lymphatic system that surrounds the brain and drains the brain. If you look at pictures in, in all the old textbooks, which are going to have to be rewritten, the lymphatic system ends at the top of the neck. And I just always used to think, well, how can that be? How can the most important organ of the body not have a lymphatic drainage system? Well, because the research community assumed that everything had been mapped by the middle of the last century. So this research turns a whole lot of other assumptions on their heads. And some of those assumptions are directly relevant to children who after vaccination experience inflammation and other problems in their brains that doctors constantly deny could be caused by vaccines. If the brain has a lymphatic system, it must need that lymphatic system, right? The brain is not as isolated and protected from the happenings of the rest of the body that we have been told that it is. And the other thing is that it's a reality that mapping something isn't the end point. So the, the anatomical mapping is that what I'm talking about. You can look at a computer 
a keyboard and a screen. And if you don't understand how that computer works, you're not going to be able to use very much on that computer. And if you want to change how that computer functions, you have to understand the software quite well, not just the mouse and the keyboard. And vaccination basically rewrites the software of the immune system. And in my opinion, that makes it less functional in the long run. With the body, there's an assumption that everything in there is already named and understood, and that's just not the case. As a nephrologist, there are many conditions which retreat where we're flying blind because we can't fully understand the condition. We know where the problem is and what it looks like under a microscope, but we actually have few clues as to why the problem started or how to reverse the process. And so what we do as nephrologists is we really just try to, you know, immunosuppress a person to get this disease to stamp out. But that doesn't mean that we understand it at all. And most of these diseases I'm talking about in nephrology are immunologically mediated diseases, but we still don't understand them. There's so much that isn't known about the functions of the body and what can make it go wrong that much of what we do is still empirical and flying blind. And when you consider how thoughtlessly the medical system tosses cluster bombs of any sort into the complex human ecosystem that they don't understand, it's pretty amazing. But most people don't really get that truth and depth and fact until after something goes wrong when they're under the care of the medical system. I'm speaking with physician, researcher, and author, Dr. Suzanne Humphreys. Today's show, Vaccination, Enough to Make You Sick. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Dr. Humphreys, you have mentioned several times the cell-mediated immune system, but but you write about another part of the immune system called the humoral immune system. What's the difference? Okay. The cell-mediated immune system are basically the attack cells that are ready and waiting all the time. It's the reason every time you have a new cold virus or a new bacteria that you've never met before that starts to invade your body, that you don't die from it. Think about it. I mean, if you had to have the kind of immunity that vaccines supposedly give, and if you had to have the kind of immunity that, um, that you get after you've been infected with something, we wouldn't survive anything, right? Because you have to first survive the disease in order to get that memory immunity. So how is that disease survived without that memory immunity is by macrophages and killer lymphocytes. That's what I mean by cell-mediated immunity, cells like that that are already there and ready and waiting to do the job, okay? Okay, and so that's the cell-mediated immune system. The humoral immune system, humoral just means antibody. And antibodies come from cells but they also exist in and of themselves circulating in our bodies. So we all have levels of different types of antibodies like immune globulin A called IgA, immune globulin G, IgG, and IgM, for instance. So we all have that right now circulating around. We we don't necessarily need a vaccine or an illness for that because it's just a normal part of the immune system development to have low levels of these certain immune globulins. And they do provide some help in the total orchestration of immunity. But those are two different arms of immunity. And after a vaccine is given, what scientists measure most is the antibody. And what I'm saying is that it's not necessarily the antibody that protects us. What happens with IgG antibody, for instance, is that that's actually the last thing that happens when you get sick. So when you get measles, the first thing that happens is that your lymphocytes are alerted. And then the measles is spreading through the body. 
And then more of your lymphocytes are alerted because it gets into different cells that have to be killed. You actually have to kill your own cells in order to kill the measles virus. And then as this process is happening, you're making different types of antibody. So first you're making IgM and then later you're making the IgG. So it's not possible that, that your IgG is protecting you given that it's the last thing that happens. Yet it's the focus of, uh, I should say it's the surrogate marker for immunity. When we know better now today, we know that we can measure cytokines, which tell us uh, they're basically communication molecules, which tell us what cells are active in a person. Yet that's not routinely done when looking at whether a person is immune or not after a vaccine. So uh, Dr. Humphreys, are you essentially saying then that what is usually looked at are antibodies, but that they don't tell the whole story at all? Absolutely. And, and that's all that's looked at. It's called titers. So if you look at all the vaccine science and if you look at, you know, whether if you want to get opt out of a vaccine yourself, what they'll do is they'll draw blood and then they take that blood and they expose it to um, cells that are infected with the virus, for instance. So they're, they're able to see if your blood is able to stop those cells from getting infected. And that's one way they can test it. Um, so there are other ways that they can test what your, quote, titer is. It's not a direct measurement. It's kind of an indirect measurement of how much antibody you have circulating. But whether or not that antibody specifically is protecting you is still a bit of an unknown. It's not an exact measurement. There's really no great exact measurement of a person's immunity by looking in the blood. All we can really do is gather clues. But we know for certain that it's, it's the cell-mediated immunity that fights off the disease of measles. And so it would make much more sense to have a measurement of what, what cells of yours and how many of those cells have been activated and primed and can remember that particular disease. But that is not something that's routinely done, even though we do have the technology. Again, it's some of it's indirect and some of it's direct technology to be able to measure those things. We're still looking at antibodies. So it's a pretty antiquated way that we're looking at people's blood to see whether or not they're immune, either from a vaccine or from having the actual disease. Could you talk about the use of cocker spaniel kidneys in the production of vaccines? Is this a safe procedure? What does the term immortal or continuous line mean in this context? Okay. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it sounds like a pretty crazy concept, doesn't it? Uh, but it's not. It's actually happening. These cocker spaniel kidney cells were taken out of cocker spaniels. I believe it was in the 1950s by two scientists named Maiden, M-A-D-I-N, and Darby. And at the time, you know, they were just looking for a cell line that they could culture out and would, would stay good enough that they could do different experiments on it. Well, over time, and we don't really know how, but these same cell lines, this made in Darby cell substrate has become immortal. And that basically means that it's, termed, it's turned tumorigenic. And this is not something I made up, you know, this is written about in textbooks. It's also written by the FDA. The FDA says nobody knows how these cells were made immortal. But I can tell you that I can only speculate, but the textbooks clearly state that an oncogenic transformation occurred and that there was a chromosomal mutation. So it basically means that these normal cocker spaniel kidney cells somehow, and you can do this by radiating them, you can do them by exposing them to different chemicals, but they became mutants and became cancer cells. 
And this is very handy when you want to have what's called an immortal cell line. These um, bio companies can just keep selling these, these tumor um, cells, these tumor cell lines to different labs, and they'll just grow so perfectly and beautifully and, and aggressively that it's a really easy way to do experiments and to grow vaccine on. So in order to understand further what, what I'm going to explain, you have to understand that in order to make a vaccine, like say a flu vaccine, you have to find a way to grow the flu virus. You know, you, it just doesn't magically happen that you get two antigens from the influenza vaccine and um, are able to put it in salt water and inject it. So what they used to do is they used to inject um, chicken eggs but that's very time-consuming and costly, and there are problems associated with chicken viruses that can come along for the ride. So they needed a way to do, it, do things quicker and cheaper. And what they did is they said, hey, let's try these made-in-Darby kidney cells because they're cheap, they're easy, we don't need to uh, you know, wait a whole year to get things up and running. And so they started experimenting and they found that they, they worked really well to, to grow the flu vaccine in. And then what you do is you, you harvest your influenza virus and then you kill it and then you extract the antigens that you want. But the problem is that you can never extract just the pieces that you want. There's always going to be some genetic material from whatever cell lines you grew it on. There's always going to be some leftovers from the media that you use to keep those cells alive, which usually contains animal blood. Um, there's usually going to be something left over from the trypsin that they get from, from uh, pig intestine or pig pancreas rather. And so there's many animal uh, substrates used to make these vaccines. So they use these tumorigenic kidney cells to make um, a flu vaccine, and it's been marketed. Um, I actually have the article sitting in front of me from Time Magazine talking about, uh, this was October 30th, 2014. The title is, the, This Flu Shot is Not Like the Others. And indeed, it is not like the others. Um, this flu shot um, is now made on tumorigenic made-in-Darby kidney cells, and it's distributed in the United States of America. So um, it's, it's a Novartis flu cell vax. That is the name of it. And I've got other documents um, from the Department of Health and Human Services, conversations between scientists discussing how these made-in-Darby um, kidney cells are tumorigenic, and how this vaccine will represent the first licensed vaccine in the United States to be manufactured on tumorigenic cells. Then they talk about how some of the members of this um, committee expressed reservations regarding the use of these tumorigenic cells, but they came to the general agreement that the approach to risk mitigation is acceptable. So they're saying basically that they know, the FDA knows that these are tumorigenic um, kidney cells and that there is a risk that any vaccine that's made on these cells could give the person who's been injected with it some form of cancer. However, they say that the risk is very small. And my problem with it is that cancers don't grow the day that you're injected with a vaccine. And we just don't do long-term studies on vaccines. So we're really never gonna have the answer to this question. But you know, it's, it's the better part of wisdom to say you don't want to be injected with a vaccine that's been grown on a tumorigenic dog kidney cell line. Wouldn't you think? Well, yeah. Now, when you use the word tumorigenic, you mean mm -hmm. that this strain uh, grows tumors, right? 
that's exactly right. I mean, this this I didn't make the name up. The 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 FDA talks about this. FDA documents state that um, that I have it right in front of me from the FDA.gov <laughs> documents introducing tumorigenic cell lines for vaccine development. Tumorigenic cells may form tumors if transferred to a recipient. I mean, this is what these documents say. So tumorigenic means that um, that these cells have turned into tumor cells and that they have the potential if they go into another person to cause tumors. And Dr. Humphreys, uh, just to clarify, they have used this uh, continuous line or this tumorigenic line, they've used this in a flu vaccine. Do you know of any other ways they've used it? Um, I believe that it was initially started for animal vaccines. And animal vaccines are really so much worse than human vaccines because there's the assumption that animals don't live as long and so we don't have to have the purity level that we have to have with human vaccines. So, you know, your dog, your cat, your horse are, are always going to be getting vaccines that have uh, much lower standards in the production process uh, than human vaccines. Uh, but as far as I know right now, as far as the only human vaccines that are on the market right now, is for the one that I mentioned, the flu cell vax. There will be more though. You just follow along over the years because once this has been accepted um, and if it stays on the market, this will be a common substrate for vaccines to be grown on. Are vaccines presently contaminated with animal viruses? Vaccine manufacturers make a point of saying that their vaccines, as far as they're able to tell, using the tests available to them, are not contaminated. But as I've said before, if something is in there which has never been identified, it's hard to test for it. For instance, Dr. Bernice Eddy, during the polio vaccine era, first knew that there was something in the polio vaccine because fluid from those vaccine cultures caused cell cultures to become abnormal. Okay, so she didn't know what it was or how to identify it. She only knew there was something wrong because the way she was researching the issue. The question is, do manufacturers use a variety of tests to try to find contaminants they don't know exist, or do they only employ the tests that are already developed to identify what is known? And there was another problem with that with the simian virus 40 that we talked about in the last show. So if you don't have the right test and you don't perform it properly, you're not going to find the problem. When you consider how a live or killed viral or bacterial vaccine is made, there are numerous stages along the way where animal tissue or fluids are used that could lend itself to contamination with what they call adventitious agents, which means viruses or bacteria that have come from the animal that was used. With the rotavirus vaccine, the vaccine manufacturers didn't find the two pig virus types that contaminated the vaccine. The person who found them was someone who was playing around with a totally new technology the vaccine manufacturers weren't using. So the question is, what else is missed in all these other vaccines? And we just don't have the answer to that. I'm speaking with physician, researcher, and author, Dr. Suzanne Humphreys. Today's show, Vaccination, Enough to Make You Sick. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What does one-size-fits-all mean in the context of vaccination? Well, in the eyes of the CDC, one-size-fits-all simply means that everyone should line up and be injected with all the vaccines the CDC says are needed by every single person listed 
in their recommendations. If you have cancer or an autoimmune disease or AIDS or a prior severe reaction to a vaccine, or if you fall into a group that has not been tested in a trial, you're still likely to be pushed into taking vaccines. If you have a chronic disease, you're even more likely to be pushed into having vaccines because you are, quote, more vulnerable, unquote. Yet they may have never been tested in people with that condition. And I've had that experience myself as a nephrologist. We know that medicines don't work the same on everyone. When I dealt with high blood pressure, there were lots of different regimens that I would have to use on different kinds of people. So there was never a one-size-fits-all protocol to treat high blood pressure. And this is true for many drugs. But with vaccines, everyone is supposed to take the same vaccine and have the same good response and no severe side effects. I mean, it's completely irrational and completely unscientific to expect that everybody that you line up to have these vaccines is going to have the same response and is going to have a good response. Well, do they give the same amount to uh, children that they give to adults? They, they, there's, a, there's a period of cutoff where you're no longer considered um, a child, and then you start to, you'll, you'll be given the same adult vaccines. But babies are given, you know, the same, there's no stratification for weight in a baby. You know, if you're a premature infant or you're one year old, you're still going to get the same dose of vaccine. How would you describe the World Health Organization? Is the WHO primarily a global disease eradication and healthcare organization, or does it have a different mandate? What's its bottom line? Okay. Well, I used to, you know, I would hear the, the words, you know, World Health Organization, and I would think, oh, you know, whatever they say, that must be really good. Um, and that's really because I didn't know any better. And it wasn't until um, my nightmare began and I started um, having to do the research and to understand more in depth uh, what the different organizations are that support vaccination throughout the world that I really um, got more information on the World Health Organization. And what I realized is that the World Health Organization has a job to do. Everybody that's there gets paid a salary and it's essentially a business with a business plan. Very disheartening to learn about this, but that's been evident since the mid-1990s. And the public sees the World Health Organization as knights in shining armor, just like I did, who came charging in to rescue people in distress. But the reality is that the mandate of the World Health Organization is the political extension of the business mandate of the pharmaceutical companies. Their job, under the guise of keeping everyone healthy, is to keep the wealth of the drug companies fluid so that the huge medical stock market continues to roll on without a falter. And in fact, many World Health Organization consultants are pharma executives or professors with strong pharmaceutical ties or who are paid handsomely through pharmaceutical companies. So there's no way around that. You have a built-in conflict of interest in the World Health Organization. And if you listen to my video, Honesty Versus Policy, I do go into some detail about that. I provide references as well. And you can guarantee that if there was ever developed a vaccine or a drug which guaranteed that no one would ever get sick from anything or get cancer or any autoimmune disease ever again, the World Health Organization would, would probably not want it to be heard of because not only would everyone in the World Health Organization be out of work for that, the most lucrative sector of the stock market would be disemboweled in a week. So what would the World 
What would the world do with millions of out-of-work doctors, drug representatives, pharmaceutical factory workers? You know, the out-of-work doctors can't all become accident and trauma experts, which is one field which will probably always be needed. And what would all the researchers in academia do if the cure for their particular disease was found? You know, I remember in my residency when, you know, the field of AIDS specialty was, was really blossoming. And I thought to myself, what would happen if we had a cure for AIDS? You know, what would all these doctors who are now specializing in AIDS medicine, what would all these, these, these all the money that's coming through the pharmaceutical company? And it just, just kind of hit me between the eyes for the, I mean, there are other instances of this in history, but here I was in the middle of a growing new field of medicine. And I just feel like there's really not a strong drive to cure AIDS. And I think the same is true of these infectious diseases to really, you know, go into Africa, for instance, and get people to be able to thrive and live healthfully and not need vaccines, that would make the World Health Organization redundant in that sense. It would make the pharmaceutical companies irrelevant. So I don't see how that's going to happen very easily. You have spoken about a black market in used needles in Africa. How dangerous is this practice how widespread and what role do uh, World Health Organization vaccination programs play in this black market? Well, I mean, it sounds pretty dangerous, doesn't it? It really sounds quite eerie. Uh, the black market, the black market in used needles, is hardly ever talked about today. But 20 to 30 years ago, before information was easily accessed through the internet, it was an inside topic of huge discussion in the World Health Organization, who published papers on the topic which I have. Once that information became known, the World Health Organization became a lot more circumspect about what they said and how they said it because it made the extended program for immunization look really, really bad. The World Health Organization was only willing to talk about the problem and not do much about the problem. There's an organization called Safe Point Trust that you can find online that details some of the problems on their website. And I have one paper where the World Health Organization actually asks, whom should be responsible for the problem with unsafe injections? Well, it's the World Health Organization that brings in these needles to these countries. So why are they not responsible for their proper disposal? Why is SafePoint Trust having to pick up the pieces? So when I'm talking about black market needles, what we're talking about is that this extended program in immunization comes in, they do this job, they vaccinate the masses, they train people, locals, to do the, to the, do the vaccines, and then they walk away. And so all those syringes and all those needles that are left over, if they're not incinerated or somehow crunched up and disposed of properly, they're sold. And look, in these countries, people will sell anything to be able to survive. So the black market for needles was a booming market. And the problem didn't just extend to black market needles. Reusable needles were still being used in the 1980s and 1990s, and many a vaccine trial in Africa actually never made it to print because the participants were infected, for instance, with HIV through reused needles and died of that. So those studies often didn't follow through to the end. But that's not the only issue with needles. Any doctor or nurse is aware that just sticking a needle into someone can cause a huge problem. Ask any medical professional if it's possible to perform 1 million insulin, vitamin B12, or even saline injections without an injury. 
Serious adverse reactions from injections happen all the time, and medical error in general is a much larger problem than most people realize. So, you know, you can put that needle where it shouldn't go, and you can cause huge damage. And there are notifiable rates of damage in normal American hospital practice where the rate of damage is really high. There have been serious problems with needles having manufacturing issues, like in Europe, like glue resin in the barrel that gets injected into people. And even though whistleblowers in the manufacturing company tried to do something, the problem was denied and the needles were not recalled. So there are other issues too, like shrink wrap particles that have been found in vials, vials of uh, vaccine. And that's been reported not that long ago. Ground glass in vials of pharmaceutical production. So in 2011, actually, there was a serious problem of dozens of children exposed to all sorts of potential diseases because they were reusing flu vaccine syringes in the United States of America. So the CDC is well aware of unsafe injection practices, even in the United States of America. You know, when I was researching this, I came across things that that, you know, I just wanted to ignore. They're just so horrifying. I mean, there, there's a document that was put out in 1996 called State of the World's Vaccine and Immunization. And on page 167, these are not little documents, on page 167, I'm just going to read you a quote. It says, a survey carried out for UNICEF in Eastern Europe in 1992 to 93 revealed that almost 50% of health centers were giving unsafe injections and or using vaccine of doubtful potency. The study also revealed that children, especially orphans, were being subjected to an excessive number of injections in addition to immunization, an average of 115 injections in all during their first year. One orphan had been given over 500 injections. Okay, this is a World Health Organization document. This isn't, you know, something that I just found on some, you know, anti-vax blog site. You know, you can find these these World Health Organization documents that just tell you how many cases of, of, um, of diseases are propagated by unsafe injections. In the World Health Organization has one, they've reported 260,000 cases of HIV and AIDS every year, 21 million hepatitis B infections, 2 million hepatitis C infections from unsafe injections. So, you know, this is not only a problem in America, it's a problem worldwide. And it couldn't happen if those syringes weren't brought into certain parts of the world and left there. What is your view of mandatory vaccination? You have said that we live in a culture of compliance. Yes. Mandatory vaccination means abolishing any hope of informed consent, right? So you can rip up your right to think, to choose, and to act as you wish with regard to the medical system. This mentality is already enshrined in concrete when it comes to treatment of children with cancer drugs against parents' wishes. We see this happen all the time. Even a parent who doesn't want an unwarranted antibiotic or even a fever-reducing agent is often treated like a criminal by the medical system. Mandatory vaccination is the logical product of a legalistic, paternalistic mindset which says that everyone who doesn't think like the conditioned lemmings should be forced to comply. If they won't, they should either be put under house arrest, publicly shamed, or hung, drawn in quarters. It's taking on the same sorts of dimension as the Spanish Inquisition. Who would be surprised if the government instituted some sort of system whereby pro-vaccine parents would now rat on parents who didn't vaccinate for a financial reward? I wouldn't be surprised about that. It signals a total failure on the part of the medical profession to first acknowledge that as a system, 
They cause more annual deaths and disabilities than even the worst infectious diseases ever do. And that people should have the right to decide whether to engage in that system or not. That shouldn't just apply to vaccines, it should apply across the board. So in my opinion, compulsion and mandatory vaccination is one step away from slavery. Dr. Suzanne Humphreys, thank you very much. Thank you, Bonnie. I've been speaking with Dr. Suzanne Humphreys. Today's show has been Vaccination, Enough to Make You Sick. Dr. Suzanne Humphreys is a medical doctor, internist, and board-certified nephrologist, currently in private practice. She is co-author of Dissolving Illusions, Disease, Vaccines, and the Forgotten History. Currently, the California legislature is fast-tracking two vaccine Senate bills, Senate Bill 277 will eliminate the personal belief and religious exemptions from vaccines required for children to attend public and private school. Senate Bill 792 will require CDC-prescribed adult immunization of child care workers with the exception of flu vaccine. Visit drsuzanne.net. That's D-R-S-U-Z-A-N-N-E dot N-E-T and visit dissolvingillusions.com. That's dissolvingillusions.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaro Mako, and Tony Rango. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. That's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Visit gunsandbutter.org to sign up for our email list to receive our newsletter. Guns and Butter Online now includes a new website, an active Twitter feed, show archives, and a blog. Follow us at G and B Radio. Hey yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. Trying to steal your life, you know what I'm saying? Look what this side just.